0: I am brother Cornel West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy prophet of rage. And this is Newsbeat. Peace and love, everybody. It's your man, Manny Faces. Uh, back again with another episode of Newsbeat, the award-winning podcast that melds uh, music with social justice journalism. High-level, hard-hitting, real news Journalism. I'm joined again by uh, my comrades in arms here on the show, Christopher Tawarski, our editor-in-chief, Rashid Mian, our, uh, what are you? Managing editor, that's what you are. I just, I just do things and I say things. Uh, good to see you both uh, again. We have an interesting episode that we are now, again, introducing in a little bit more of a conversational format than we have in the past. Uh, we did it for the last episode and at least one person said they like it. So that was enough to, for us to do it again. <laughs>
1: Did we send the money yet? We were going to send the money, right? To-
0: yeah, yes. Uh, we're going to give them a special edition of uh, the Newsbeat podcast on CD. That's oh, very exci- uh, it. It's very exciting. very exciting. And a tote bag.
2: A mug? Can they get a mug? Because Rashad and I still need our mugs. All
0: right. I'll tell you what. If you like this way of introducing the episodes and you tell us twice, you will also get a mug. In the meantime, in between time, between now and then, we want to just uh, remind folks that uh, we're following up on our uh, last episode, 9-11 Redux. Will the Israel-Hamas conflict lead to a renewed war on terror? And in that episode, uh, rather than breaking down every element of the conflict, we wanted to highlight some of the horrific abuses of the U.S.-led so-called war on terror over the years and look at what's happening overseas now as a possible parallel Uh, to those days when we ended up sort of unilaterally deciding that we were just going to kill anyone around the world that we felt like it, I think, is the synopsis, correct?
1: That's about right. And, uh, you know, just all the horrific abuses and, like you said, the parallels, and Mm -hmm. just warning about what could come next if we don't heed some of the uh,
0: lessons from the not-so-distant past. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, you know, we talked about how we normally, through the years, have done this podcast, and we haven't always... Delved into current affairs or current events. We, we like to pride ourselves normally on the fact that our episodes are, are, for the most part, very evergreen. You could listen to them years later and still, unfortunately, the problems that we tackled a few years ago are still rearing their heads. And this is sort of a never ending cycle, but uh, the information presented uh, in our episodes can be listened to over time. And the danger, I guess you want to call it a danger in this business of talking about things that are current sometimes those things go away very fast and the situation changes. And, and we never really wanted to be sort of on that tip, but the way we're doing these conversational intros and the fact that we're covering some current events, we didn't want to ignore it. We didn't want to not talk about it. We didn't want to act like we don't know what's going on. So I thought we'd just have a, a minute to just you know, kind of give a quick thought uh, around the table about what is happening, how our, after we've done the episode about you know, the 9-11 Redux episode, what we'll be we thinking, what we've seen in the news since then, et cetera, et cetera. Just, you know, your thoughts on it, and then we'll uh, get into the new episode. Yeah.
2: For me, at least, you know,
0: journalists
2: have an obligation to speak up about some of the things that are particularly going on right now uh, with Israel and Palestine and um, Ukraine. And we felt that, you know, without mentioning, or at least at the minimum, you know, asking people who are listening to this episode to go back and listen to that one and previous episodes that we've done about uh, the war on terror would just be a disservice. When you turn on the TV or you go on the internet and you see the level of human suffering going on right now, I feel that it's, it's everyone's obligation to at least try and speak up. And at least, you know, again, even if it's just a call to have... People be more aware of what's going on. We sort of viewed the last episode, uh, which we said at the top in the introduction of the last episode, as as a call to really ask listeners to pay closer attention to what's going on because we know where this can lead. So yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
2: We're already seeing. You know, uh,
1: I think it was. I know again, this could be dated by the time people listen to it, but we saw. I think Hezbollah attack a, a base in northern Israel. There's this dramatic footage you all should check out of these Houthi rebels from Yemen taking a helicopter, I think, and landing onto an Israeli ship um, in the ocean somewhere, which is, it looks like it's out of a video game. Again, these are groups that you're not talking, you know, you don't think about in this quote unquote war on Gaza. I say quote unquote because the, the war at this point is disproportionately impacting the people of Gaza, obviously with the death toll and the amount of strikes. Um, But again, just to see how this could potentially escalate. Um, And just another update that I think is worth mentioning um, from our last episode, and you all probably saw it, the Center for Constitutional Rights filed a lawsuit against Biden, I think Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Lloyd Austin of complicity in a genocide against the Palestinian people. So I know that term has been thrown around a lot in the last few weeks, obviously. And there's people who talk about, well, you need intent. Um, Some would argue that... um, the Israeli government has mentioned that intent with some of their, what they've said out loud, particularly citing Benjamin Netanyahu's um, sort of like holy war rhetoric um, right. um, about Palestinians. So that's just another update. You know, there there is, I, I will say, I mean, I wasn't really um, activated in 2003 when there was large scale protests for the Iraq war. I was, I don't know, 15, 16, whatever it was. But just to see the, the number of young people out on the streets and protesting this war is kind of incredible. And I don't know the the media uh, reporting on protests is always flawed. As we know from a lot of our coverage about the racial justice protests, especially, you know, why we riot the episode that we did talking about that. And then the George Floyd protests, and they always focus on the, like the looting and things like that. No, that is happening. But we did have the one protest outside the DNC, right? And there was people just standing there blocking a door. We did see footage later that there was another door that people could go exit and enter as freely as they wanted to. All the uh, politicians were going to DNC to get their donor base excited about their uh, measly policy proposals, and the police came in and just turned a peaceful protest into a violent protest. And the protesters weren't the violent ones. But then you had lawmakers talking about, like, sort of uh, comparing them to. January 6th, uh rioters. So just a lot of stuff happening right now. So we just wanted to, you know, mention a few things. Obviously, we're not even touching on right. the horrors and atrocities. Again, I'm just like on Twitter every night and I'm just seeing these children just dying and like kids like mm-hmm. holding their little siblings as they're, you know, uh they're taking their last breaths. It's just I mean, over
2: thirty or what is it now? Up to over thirteen thousand civilians killed. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, you know. I try to do it a little differently. I try to, because again, as I always say, I learn from the episodes that we do, thinking about the parallels to the nine eleven, the aftermath of nine eleven, and what that means. How uh, we were able to use that incident to do a lot of what we wanted in terms of war or strategy or or, or movements or dealing with other countries or you know, going after people who were. On our terror list and rounding up people who weren't terrorists, but we just rounded them up because we figured we will get a terrorist in there if we just get them all. You know, law numbers. That was something I hadn't thought about as, as much. Uh, I do want to shout out uh, one of the other shows, one of our friends' shows that I, I work on as well, Uneffing the Republic. That show, which we've cross-pollinated a few times with them, uh, we just did a, a couple of episodes that are of interest. Um, I like the way that the host Max put out a three-part series on sort of the history not of the conflicts, right? There's a lot of stuff about the conflicts and we can get into that. And this was meant to be a very impartial, simple, as simple as you can get, accounting of historical facts that led to where we are today. We all know that Palestine sort of existed and Israel was made. And then, you know, but who lived there beforehand? How many times did they try to do things? There were these Oslo Accords and these other, you know, and even going farther back, you know, the the Ottoman Empire, all this stuff. I didn't know any of this stuff because, you know, me, I'm brilliant, but I don't know everything. And um, it was really helpful to learn exactly who did what, when, where, and how throughout history. And it was done in the very, as, again, as impartial as possible. So our episodes and episodes like that really can give you the context you need to understand what's going on without having to be swayed by emotion. You know, everyone has a side in this thing, and I think everyone's kind of dug in already. And it's easy to then, as we know throughout social media and echo chambers and all that, to just keep getting hit with the same you know stuff that makes you feel the way you already feel and i'm not saying that this is going to change that but i'm saying it's it's really interesting proper context historically to find out how we got here and you know not for nothing well, I don't want to sway anyone's opinion one way or the other but uh, it does give some great insight so that three part series and then we are we just released it on, on youtube for the Unffing the republic uh, podcast and also we're doing it on the podcast feed max interviewed Professor Rashid Khalidi, uh, who is a preeminent scholar on the uh, history of Palestine as well, uh, teaches at Columbia. Uh, has some fancy titles. So again, that conversation was very eye-opening because we don't get to hear sort of like all the things that happened in the past. We hear about what's happens today and this horrific thing, and then but we don't actually really know how it got. Most of us, I'm speaking for the you know the most of us, don't really know how we got here. I think it's important to know, and it really helps uh, understand. The, the, uh, the backstory and also be prepared or be fearful or be conscious of, as you said, the potential for what might happen next. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there as well. I appreciate that. And before we move on to this episode
1: um, the, yeah. that we have, just a quick thing on, on that point. I think for a long time, the media has been the main voice that says, oh, this conflict is too complicated. It's tough to understand, you know, there's um, competing issues. It's very, you know, like as you mentioned, people get dug in, um, obviously, because when it also has to, you know, when there's religion involved, the media often doesn't want to talk about it. I will say, I want, I'll go back to what Tanahisi nehisi Coates said in the Democracy Now clip that we had. It really isn't that complicated. And it's an argument I've had with people myself that I'm close with. I said, the the media, the mainstream, even entertainment, anybody, they've made you think that you can't understand this issue. Right. which prevents people from trying to understand the issue. Right. And I think that's been um, a core thing. That's happened. And what I will say about that, as much as the media and the institutions and politicians, especially have done that to people trying to suppress their own consciousness and understanding of a hot button issue, the, all the young people that are actually like protesting and not just protesting, but speaking out about this issue and very educated, more, even more educated than,
0: Myself, I'm not the most, I'm not an, an expert, mm-hmm. but I have studied. Yeah, So like I say, like, you don't want to say like doing their own research because that has negative connotations, but they're right. actually doing their own research in a, in an educated, learned way. And then acting exactly. on that. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one inspiring thing. Cause it's not that yeah. complicated when you really know, like I said, this is what I'm learning. I'm learning the actual backgrounds and I'm like, oh yeah, this isn't that complicated. It is what it is. But yep. anyway. And, and I'll just uh, add that
2: Manny, as you had said earlier, you know, you're no expert. None of us are experts in in any of this stuff middle east studies or or you know geopolitics and mm-hmm. but for me, you know and also Rashad, to your point about uh, what we ended that episode with uh, with uh, Tanisi Coates, to him, it was blatant it, just how black and white it was, um especially you know as a black man, and the two sort of tiered hierarchy that exists uh, in the government there and the, and um I like to think that us three we try to stay up. To date, right? I had never known. I mean, you know, I'm learning about this stuff, many as you said too, on a daily basis. And it just was shocking to me how little I had heard from the schools I went to or the media outlets that I read or listen to. And I think part of that is also, and I'm sure we'll do an episode in the future on, on some of these, uh, these themes that I go through, but I think part of that is also just uh, control of the messaging and, and propaganda
0: yeah that's it. Uh, I think uh, Professor Rashidi sa- uh, Khalidi said some like, all through the years, it's been a narrative that we've all just been told and fed, whether it's you know that this is too complicated or you know Israel's place you know and how they're how they must be treated and and you know and that was kind of like the thing that's always been fed to us and A lot of us, you know, honestly, we're just like, okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, they have to be there, their birthright and all that stuff. We we don't know. Like, we're not that much into it. Then you hear about all the actual how it came to be, and it's not, it, it ends up being less complicated than they tell you. So anyway, that being all said, thank you for that. Any comments, obviously, please give us your two cents. You know, again, we're changing things up a little by doing these conversational intros. We're also changing it up by giving our two cents about what's happening today. And if you have some comments or you know, questions or you want to call us out on something or you want to agree with us, uh, you know, please do so. You, know, you can always uh, uh, hit us up, you know, usnewsbeat.com, and, and, and contact us through there. And uh, we'd love to have dialogue going back and forth with you all if, uh, if that's uh, what your heart desires. Because you know why? Because it would be a beautiful union between us and our listeners. Perfect, perfect placement. Segues perfect nicely. placement there. With segues nicely, tell me about this next episode uh, that we're about to get into right now.
1: Yeah, great. Obviously, we've heard a lot, I think, within the last two years, I would say about sort of the uprising within corporate institutions in America and people, right, you know, trying to form unions and, you know, speaking out about corporate abuses and obviously the rising inequality that we've had in America for a long time, for decades now, but was really highlighted during the COVID 19 pandemic, right? We saw so many billionaires make so much more money Mm -hmm. over that time that it became even more obscene that even if you sort of were like pro capitalism, and you, you didn't care about like, you know, potential socialist solutions to certain things. Like even if once you saw how much Jeff Bezos was making, how, all these, how much these people were making off of us while we were just sitting at home, people were losing their jobs. People didn't have money. They had to rely on government, taxpayer funded programs to support them. Like when you saw that, you're like, oh my God, this is, this is incredible. So we've seen with Amazon, with Starbucks, with so many people coming out, trying to form unions. It's still not what it was years ago. And I don't think we'll ever get to the point. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. We'll get to the point where unions are as sort of um, healthy and strong as they were decades ago, right? Um, but we are seeing a comeback. And uh, about a few months ago, I was on the, I think the Guardian site, and I saw a review of this book, Rust Belt Union Blues, Why Working Class Voters Are Turning Away from the Democratic Party. And I read the, the summary and I was like, you know, let me reach out. Let's, let's interview this person or one of the authors. Of the book, and it was it was a mind bending experience actually reading this book. Um, I came away with it like with a better understanding of the collapse of the unions and how union members went from really exclusively supporting the Democratic Party. There's quotes in this book where people are like, "Yeah, we never thought we would ever support a Republican. We would never vote Republican back in the day. It made no sense. They weren't for the quote unquote working man, right? Because back in the day, the majority of the people in unions were were white males, and then you." you get to the point in 2016 where Trump wins over so many of these voters, right. And the media and so many people in the political circles are just trying to figure out how did this happen? Why did he do it? You know, and then you read the you read some of the interview people, they study things and you really come away sort of knowing that the democratic party really abandoned these people. I think that that's part of the title that we have for this episode. And the, some of the colorful quotes, uh, I think one still got to Chris, Chris, you could talk about that one um about you know people the way I think it was something about a lie is better than nothing. Uh, right,
2: and, and when she was breaking down, just you know why Trump resonated so much, uh, you know with uh, Republicans, you know, uh,
0: right the, the 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 forgotten the forgotten will not be forgotten any yeah. longer. And then of course he was of course he was going to forget you, but a lie Eli is than better than, than nothing. nothing.
2: Right? And you know he was able to sort of weaponize the, their their resentments. And as Rashad said, their their sense of abandonment by the Democrats and you see what happened. So,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then you look, uh, we'll let you listen to the episode. We don't want to give everything away, um, but they do go through. It's uh Lainey Newman who is just incredible. She like did this as a thesis. She's still in college and it became, it was such a great work that she did that she teamed up with a professor and they wrote this book Um so a lot of us would love to get a book published. She already has one published. And- Must <laughs> must be nice. Everyone be nice. got a book. <laughs> um, so yeah, but they go through all the stages, the height of unions in America, especially in the Rust Belt. This is specifically about the Rust Belt. The main setting is like parts of Pennsylvania, especially Pittsburgh. So they go through the birth of the unions, how how they created so much power, why they were so important. One of the reasons why Democrats had a sort of a stronghold in this is because unions themselves were like the center of community activities, everything that happened during family life or things that were not even related to work. A lot of that happened with just like people hanging out with other union members or going to union halls, right? As the unions become less, less and less powerful. And these industries start collapsing in America and offshoring takes hold. These union halls are replaced by like the NRA, and then eventually right. the Tea Party and other movements. So these other ideas and groups and actual physical forms,
0: you know, um, they take right. hold. Whereas once tea- you were part of you were part of something that's right. now left. And now here's the thing I could be a part of. Exactly. And, and how how much
1: that, you know, helped um, Trump, especially in 2016. So um, we saw mm. in 2020 Biden took away some of those voters, but not significantly. So there's still, you know, a lot of uh, union members who used to be exclusively supporting Democrats um, now go to the to the GOP, and that's just to say a lot of you know complaints people have with Demo- the Democratic Party is they do feel abandoned, they do feel like yeah. their vote is taken for granted, and that the Democrats um, every four years will just say, "Yep, they're going to show up to vote no matter what. Doesn't matter what we do or what we don't yeah. do, they're going to show up to vote." So I really yeah. think this is a critical analysis. And my last takeaway. Um, after speaking with Laney and reading this book, is that I'm more convinced than ever that Bernie Sanders, if not for the DNC's, you know, uh, them trying to take over that primary process um, right. and everything that happened there, would have beat Donald Trump in 2016. And mm. I'm, again, I'm more convinced than ever. Gotcha.
0: Well, that sounds uh, eye-opening and mind-bending. And let's get into it. This is abandoned. How Democrats lost support of union workers.
3: Let's go next to Angel from New York. Angel, you're on the air right, uh, my question for you. I mean, I work for a public sector trade union, a fairly powerful one at that.
1: Uh, my question to you is, uh, why do so many people in these trade unions? Um, not talking about teachers or police, since it's fair white, fairly obvious where they fall politically and why they do. But what do other people, firefighters, uh, steel workers Why do they
3: seem to lean to the right, not just on cultural issues, but even economic ones? And what can the left do about that? Because it seems like an unwinnable battle. So I take issue with one aspect of what you're saying. I think you are 100 percent correct that a lot of the kind of laborer, trade union members have absolutely moved to the right in terms of how they vote over the last 20 years. And uh, I think that. The part where you're wrong is if you really sit down and talk to these folks about economic issues, they are they're very clearly on the left. The problem is that the cultural conservatism of some of those unions combined with people who just are busy living their lives and aren't really thinking through the economic issues and the proposals of the candidates are just kind of saying, yeah, I, I, I believe I'm a Republican.
4: The genesis of this book started back when I was a junior in college. I was here at Harvard College. I studied government. And I had been doing some research with Professor Scotchpole uh, on her research projects, including those related to the Tea Party um, and grassroots organizing, the resistance movement, as well as actually at the time we were working on a project trying to track opioid deaths relative to policies in various states. And so I was sort of on her research teams and really interested in the style of research that she engages in. Which is uh, trying to tie sort of uh, local level grassroots patterns and organizing with sort of broad trends that we see, sociological trends that we see on the electoral outcome basis or political changes over time, and really trying to integrate individual perspectives and knowledge into that narrative. But my upbringing in Western Pennsylvania and my family, my extended family uh, members had me interested, you know, from when I was younger uh, in unions, particularly. Um, And so I have extended family members had, they've passed now, but older family members who were members of the United Auto Workers and worked at the Ford plants in um, the Minneapolis region. Our history began in 1935 as workers faced a high tide of human suffering that brought a wave of solidarity among exploited workers and the unemployed alike. Phrases like sit-down strikes, hunger marches, and company goons entered into the national consciousness. Brave working people banded together and fought tenaciously at General Motors at the Flint sit-down strike the Battle of the Overpass at Ford Motor Company and countless other work sites where working people were denied basic rights in the workplace. And through that, I sort of got a little bit of exposure to, I think, what was in my mind a very paradigmatic union man identity. My uncles were incredibly steadfast, loyal members, very loyal to their union, and subsequently to the Democratic Party. Growing up in Western Pennsylvania, on top of that exposure through my family, seeing the changes that were happening in the region and sort of living through those changes.
2: We started out in Buffalo, New York, and then we drove west to Erie, Pennsylvania, and our third stop, Youngstown, Ohio. We wanted to see different parts of the Rust Belt, areas that once used to be manufacturing hubs. We wanted to find out how the people are faring and also how they're thinking about the upcoming presidential election. I think a lot of people, when they think about the Rust Belt, they think about buildings like this. Abandoned factories, steel mills that have been closed for decades. People who have been here since the manufacturing boom, they've seen their cities change and adapt to the fact that manufacturing really has taken a decline.
4: The sort of peak of union power that we look at in the book is the 50s and 60s, where union density was around 30, 32% generally speaking, but that is across the whole population, the working population. So it's not exactly representative of these particular regions. And of these, specifically of industrial towns um, in the industrial Midwest, and in the Rust Belt, that number represents only so much in that most of these, a lot of these towns were almost, you know, were very highly unionized. And one thing that we highlight in the book is more union members than non-union members had, um, male union members had stay-at-home wives. So these, these, these communities were highly dependent on the union infrastructure. Now today we see a very different union density. It's about 10%, 10, 10, 11%, but different across the private sector and the public sector. So most of the union density that we have now is actually in the public sector teachers and public sector workers, as opposed to the industrial unions.
3: In the late 1950s, a little bit more than one out of every three wage and salary workers in the private sector were covered by a union contract. And now that number is down to about 6.5%. So there's been a tremendous decline. Since the 1950s, Youngstown's population has declined by 60% from about 168,000 to 65,000 and is still shrinking. Thousands of empty homes have been left behind, crippling the housing market and eroding the social fabric of this once mighty industrial base. When the steel mills closed in the 1970s, Youngstown lost 40,000 good-paying jobs. Today, almost 40% of residents live below the federal poverty line.
4: Unions at the height of their power were incredibly integrated and involved in, in many ways, in community life. And I think that that's one of the things that we try to really bring out in this book um, that I think has been underemphasized in a lot of the social science research that mainly focuses on the resource mobilization capacity of unions or of the political capabilities of unions from the higher levels. But unions at the peak of their power were involved in nearly every facet of community life in these towns. The basis of our book is talking about industrial manufacturing unions, so generally the steel workers, the auto workers, the mine workers, that were really place-centric. And what I mean by that is where one local union was organized around a central plant, mill, mine, factory, that type of thing. That's not to say that there weren't other unions that were, you know, not as place-centric as those industrial unions. But generally what we saw is the community built up around that particular uh, industrial facility. Most workers living in the immediate vicinity of those facilities, and a lot of the community being centered within a small radius, actually, of of that of that place. Um, so, in Western Pennsylvania, along the Monongahela River, which runs essentially from the city of Pittsburgh south to Morgantown, you saw town you know towns dotted along the river that were based on essentially you know one type of factory or another, one facility or another, um, a lot of steel mills. And all of these towns had had their own civic and and cultural makeup.
3: With the largest Labor Day parade in America, Pittsburgh has always been known as a union city. With strong unions in steel, coal and rail, the growth of the building trades, And then the Public Social and Human Services
0: Union. You can't tell a story about organized labor or union organization without bringing the Steel City into the conversation.
4: So a lot of local ethnic churches, fraternal groups, obviously, you know, the unions, the union, physical union halls were there and other types of sort of civic involvement, whether that was VFW or veterans organizations and YMCAs and that type of thing. And then the union also got involved in sort of the the recreational and community lives of of their members. So a lot of what we sort of argue, you know, about the power of unions in this era was the involvement on that local level, on that immediate grassroots level, as opposed to this conception that union members of years past used to just listen to the messages the international president of, of the union was giving out. What we find is really union members have always been sort of and still are today suspect of sort of directives from their union about, you know, this is how you should vote or, or that type of thing. But we're highly in favor. And we found this in some interesting survey research from the 50s in particular, and then also just in, in a lot of the sort of archival documents, really in favor of community involvement and, um, of you know, charitable involvement of the union, of partnering with other local organizations of that type of thing. In terms of politics, it was mostly, you know, we don't really want anyone telling us what to do. And so our theory coming out of that and from our other findings is that people were were loyal to one another during this era and to their communities and to this understanding of mutuality, with Democrats being much more directly involved in the local affairs uh, in that way as another community partner in this era, in addition to those other institutions. Even though there was all this involvement on the civic level, on the community level, like what really connected people, what translated that type of involvement of the union to okay we're gonna we're gonna vote for the Democrats at the ballot box. And so I think I think sort of the the conclusion that we come to, and this was mainly provided, um, I think through through the interviews that we conducted, it came down to sort of a sense of group identity, and again, going back to what I mentioned before about mutuality, um, so I heard from many retirees essentially something along the lines of, there's never been a Republican who's looked out for the working man. You know, union guys just don't vote for the Republicans. They, you know, they're, they're on the side of the rich, they're on the side of the wealthy. Um, that, you know, that type of posturing of like us versus them was really central to connection between unions on the local level and on the community level with unions at the political, on the political level.
3: Yeah, well, Look, the Democrats used to rely on organized labor and organized labor used to have a strong voice in the Democratic Party. They provided the foot soldiers for the campaigns, knocking on doors, uh, stuffing envelopes back when uh, mail was a big part of a campaign and uh, uh, providing campaign contribution. They also actually used to fill a lot, of, uh, a lot of positions in the party hierarchy. No longer. Now, the Democratic Party has really forgotten the unions. They're an afterthought.
4: During this time, Democrats were involved in the local affairs and and sort of there and and participating in local life. And then secondly, this feedback mechanism of union members being influenced by one another and by a sense of group identity circulating amongst the the members itself and not necessarily coming from the top down, but being mutually reinforced by by one another. One particular quote that I'm thinking of or, or article that I'm thinking of It was like a satirical article about um, who people were going to vote for in the upcoming election. People were making jokes like, oh, like, you know, maybe he's going to vote for the Republican. But no one I mean, but in the sense that everyone knew that no one was going like it was very clear that the intention of the article was to be like, that's none of us are, are on that side. We all like all of us are against them.
2: The lifespan
3: of American labor unions is shaped like a bell curve, struggling to climb at first, then riding high and finally crashing out. The whole up and down took about 200 years total, 1935, a major turning point. The National Labor Standards Act passes, making union busting illegal, and it told businesses they could not dominate or interfere with the formation or administration of any labor organization. Newly empowered and bursting with new membership, the Smithsonian reports, in 1955, organized labor reached the apex of its power. Almost one-third of American workers were union members.
4: The share of workers in the U.S. who belong to a labor union, like I do, has fallen to around 10%. If you take out the government employees, it's 6%. And have you ever been part of a union? It sounds like you haven't.
3: No, I haven't. What got me interested in the question was just the recent news, especially around Starbucks. Starbucks workers in upstate New York. Santa Cruz. Philadelphia. Mesa, Arizona. More than 20. 30. 100. 200 Starbucks locations. (laughs) Voted in favor of joining a
2: union so far. You know, in the the immediate post-war period, uh, you know, the 50s and 60s, there was a sense American capitalism works. Unions are functional to a kind of consumer society. Free enterprise and capitalism, which the communists
3: despise, have given the American worker the highest standard of living
2: in the world. I mean, everyone's going to have a a suburban house and a Chevy in the driveway. And that led to that led to this kind of uh, stolid complacency.
4: I would agree that the decline of labor and of labor's social power particularly and sort of the staying power of unions political force in in workers lives was a slow burn. Um, And we sort of argue that what started in the 70s has been culminating over the last several election cycles but that it wasn't all of a sudden everyone was um all these union members were were voting for trump it really was over the period of you know several decades that this transition was happening
3: joining me right now is telecom union worker david kempard you were a democrat but you say you will be voting for trump now
4: correct actually the last couple
3: the last couple elections um i have been leaning more towards the conservative ticket i believe he uh is talking about the economy, uh, job growth, safety uh, for my family.
4: I think a lot of things went into the decline. Political rhetoric and changes, I think, were were incredibly important. In that, previously, I think Republicans were of the mindset of, okay, we don't like unions um, and we we don't support them, but they're players at the table. That you know, they they have a seat at the table. And we'll deal with them and cooperate in the sense that if the economy is to function efficiently, and you know, not and we're not you know, workers have to be at least somewhat sated, and, and unions are are here to stay. I think that changed in the 80s with with Reagan and PATCO, the strike of the air traffic controllers, where it it was made very publicly clear. It was a very clear political statement by the top Republican, by the president of the United States, that. Everything that that had formerly predicated the relationship between management and labor of, okay, you know, we're gonna go up against each other, but at the end of the day, like, you know, have to work with each other was thwarted because Reagan just sort of threw everyone out. And so the idea that you could really just crush unions instead of having to even even slightly work with them was introduced. That
3: I must tell those who fail to report for duty this morning They are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated.
4: And this was all going on as well when, you know, there were increasing efforts of people who had interest in the right-to-work movement, which initially, some of those states went past right-to-work laws very early on, after Taft-Hartley, which was 47, but really started gathering more steam and becoming more mainstream during this era. Economically, I think there was a lot of changes happening. This idea of inevitable modernization that we don't need necessarily to have um, things that are made with people's hands. We're gonna move on to an economy that's based on knowledge and services. And that idea was, I think, actually um, adopted by not only Republicans, but also Democrats. Where
3: is it written? that we can't lead manufacturing in the world.
2: How do we get faster? How do we get more efficient? How do we think about automating? Turning those jobs not just into a job that uses my hands, but a job that uses my heart and my mind.
4: It's an adrenaline rush. You want to be the best? I'm getting flushed about it. I mean, it excites me that much. (laughs) So the
3: great question before us is not whether globalization will proceed, but
4: so, what we were told is we needed to normalize our relationship with China. There's nothing normal about it.
3: Last man standing in an industry is not the winner. He's just the last loser.
4: And one of the things we talk about in the book is the the decision by the Carter administration to not help out, not bail out or you know help the steel industry when it was struggling during this era with foreign competition and with you know dwindling technological advantages to contrast that with in the early 2000 or mid 2000s, the bailout of the auto industry, you know, potentially could have, inaction versus action mattered there um, and and led to the rapid progression of this decline, um, at least in steel and, and in associated industries.
3: After all, steel made Youngstown into a boom town. These mills gave workers the American dream, a place to grow up, raise a family, make a good life. But if steel made Youngstown into what it was, then it also led us to what we become. Uh, the shock and the despair that took place was, was uh, very, very substantial, but yet most people felt that somehow someone was going to push some magic button and suddenly all of
4: those mills were going to open again. The social element was the first to be sacrificed during this era of a lot of labor struggles, um, where people felt like the most important thing was just for um, unions to even survive in the first place. And, you know, money and um, resources and you know people's time um, was instead going to the political efforts to try to you know stop some of these changes that were happening and and advocate for for better policies but at the same time you know there was less i think community building that was occurring at the local level because of strife you know there's a lot of nuances and complexities that but those those things sort of set the stage for this evolving decline of salience that the union had for a lot of Remaining members um, who felt that the union couldn't really save them because of these, the top down and and really anti-union measures that were happening uh, in, in the economy and, and in, in the political world.
3: We should do everything we can to keep creating good middle class jobs that help folks rebuild security for their families. And And we should do everything we can to encourage companies like Daimler to keep investing in American workers. And by the way, what we shouldn't do, I just got to say this, what we shouldn't be doing is trying to take away your rights to bargain for better wages and working You know, these so-called right-to-work laws, they don't have to do with economics, they have everything to do with politics. (laughs) What they're really talking about is uh, giving you the right to work for less money.
4: I think a lot, and a lot of workers fault politicians that made trade agreements and that sort of uh, allowed imports to replace U.S. produced materials and, and goods. But some of the early trade agreements, starting really in the 1980s, um, and then going through the Clinton era, and even even later, I think, accelerated this this idea that the U.S. wasn't wasn't any longer going to be based on manufacturing or heavy industry or anything sort of made by made by people. Rather, you know, we turned to a sort of a financial model, a service-based industrial model, um, and a knowledge-based economy. I think that a lot of workers felt abandoned not only by the Republicans who were in favor of some of these deals, but also the Democrats who were, like Clinton, who were um, in favor of, of the trade deals that accelerated that offshoring process.
3: We are on the verge of a global economic expansion that is sparked by the fact that the United States at this critical moment decided that we would compete, not retreat. In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. NAFTA will tear down trade barriers between our three nations. It will create the world's largest trade zone and create 200,000 jobs in this country by 1995 alone. Vincent Intondi, an associate professor of Af- uh, African American history at Montgomery College, has a great piece the, uh, last week in uh, Huffington Post, marking the 20th anniversary of NAFTA, which my understanding is a lot of the people who voted for that bill uh, regret it today, uh, and talking about the revisionist history about uh, Bill Clinton that floats out there. He writes The U.S. Congress, under a strong push from President Clinton, ratified the uh, NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, which he signed into law a month later. Originally, American people were told that NAFTA would make it easier for the U.S. to import cheap goods from Mexico while exporting American-made products to our southern neighbors. Thus, both economies would grow, jobs would increase, and illegal immigration would decline. It's pretty clear it did none of the
2: above.
4: I think the shift started, that I can tell, the shift started and then continued from the 1970s uh, with the Carter administration. And I think the abandonment that people felt, especially in Western Pennsylvania, when communities were really, really united to try to save certain steel plants, and kept trying to mobilize, and really did successfully mobilize to try to save steel plants in multiple areas from Youngstown to Western Pennsylvania, what essentially happened, from the point of view of my of my interviewees, was the efforts were redlined by by Wall Street, so wouldn't they couldn't get any funding or, or financing by banks, and that appeals to political leaders and including Carter fell on empty ears. And so I think that that was disillusioning for a lot of people, and that sort of kicked things off. What we talk about a lot in the book, and you know what we've seen multiple times um, in the last couple of years, especially after 2016, is the realization that the Democrats had largely abandoned a lot of these uh, smaller towns and regions, and were really just trying to focus on running up the margins in urban areas um, instead of even putting any resources to sort of maintain any sense of democratic presence in in some of the other non-urban or Rust Belt areas of these of these states, and so we look at where the Hillary campaign went. One um, is one thing, you know, not showing up to a lot of these places, and I think that's been something that the Democratic Party has dealt with in, in recent years, and, and that Biden responded to. But I think that it goes back to the central theme that I think workers felt like they were being taken for granted on on the side of Democrats.
2: There were 90,000 people in Michigan, almost 90,000, who went to the
3: polls, mostly Democrats and very large numbers of them in Detroit, Flint, Pontiac, Saginaw, these are all black cities, majority black. They stood in line in the cold for two to three hours
2: to vote. They went in there and they voted for state rep, state senate, county commission. We don't have dog catcher. Uh, we have drain commissioner, the person in charge of the sewage. That's the lowest uh, name on the ballot. Um, they stood there. They voted for the Democrats all down ballot and left the top box blank. 90,000, She only lost Michigan by 10, 11,000 votes. 90,000 wanted to send a message to the Democratic Party You forgot us a long time ago out here, and we will
3: not put up with this anymore.
4: You know, Democrats were like, OK, well, we're going to put out all the pro-union messages, and and the union rank and file will just follow. And and that really stopped being the case, and probably was never really the case um, from our perspective, because you you know this the sense of union loyalty and political loyalty to Democrats was predicated not on those top-down messages even from the beginning. You know the abandonment of these areas made workers just resentful of the urbanites and the coasts, and the amount of effort and resources that was going towards those particular political populations as opposed to paying attention to some of those areas that were really struggling during this time.
3: In Northeastern Iowa, Democrats know their brand is in trouble. A cluster of Mississippi River counties mirroring the toxic national environment for Democrats in rural America. In 1992, Democrats won 51% of the rural vote. By 2016, that number was just 35%. And rural voters have been identifying as Republicans by wider and wider margins. Last year, 52% of small town and rural voters identified as Republican, compared to just 26% who called themselves Democrats. A 26-point Republican advantage.
4: Trump comes in and he says all the things that people want to hear in these regions. Um, that's, that's one thing. So he made promises that I that no one really even thought he could keep, but he was saying them, which I think mattered to a lot of people. So there was one interviewee who um, we named the chapter after him, after the statement that he made, which was, you know, a lie is better than nothing. Um, And I think that people felt like, you know, at least he was paying attention. He was talking to people. He was going to these places and really playing on these resentments that people had developed in response to feeling like they were abandoned and that their struggles weren't paid attention to by political leaders or or policy makers. And so, you know, I think Trump comes in and um, he he plays on those resentments and he talks to people in a way that I think resonated with a lot of workers.
2: Some big news here, Megan,
3: huge news. Uh, Actually, the AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania.
4: That is the race. Frankly, uh, there is no path forward for
1: Hillary Clinton. If this, if we've just seen that Pennsylvania has been called by AP. I think for me, this is one of the most stunning results of the. night. How do you
3: keep them from exporting. Let's say jobs Ford.
0: To Mexico? Let's say Ford moves to Mexico. If they want to sell that car in the United States, they pay a tax. Here's what's gonna happen. They're not gonna build their plant there. They're gonna build it in the United States.
3: But there is a North American free trade agreement. And there shouldn't be. It's a disaster. But it is okay, there. If yes, you're president, but you're gonna have to me, live
0: with it. We will either
3: renegotiate it or we will break it. Because you know, every agreement has an end. You can't just break the wall. Excuse me, every agreement has an end. Every agreement has to be fair. Every agreement has a defraud clause. We're being defrauded by all these countries. It's called free trade, no, it's not. and it's not it not is free. a plank of the Republican platform. Scott, we need fair trade. Not free trade.
4: We need fair trade. It's got to be fair. I heard from a lot of people that basically explained it, that they just liked the way that he talked, <laughs> He that he capitalized on a sense of anger and that resentment that had developed in, in these areas. and. So the rest is kind of history, I suppose.
0: All right. Well, there it is. Abandoned, How Democrats Lost Support of Union Workers. Once again, special thanks to Laney Newman, the author of the book. Co-author of the book, Rest Rust Belt Union Blues, Why Working Class Voters
1: Are Turning Away from the Democratic Party.
0: And turn away they have. This was an interesting take on on the ongoing shifts in the union ecosystem, right? And of course, this summer we saw so much with the auto workers striking, the SAG after. Like, there's been union activity; it's a thing, and we're hearing about it, and we're you know we're tuned into a little bit more. This was interesting because in our conversations off mic, we talk about the Democrats. I, mean, I was just looking back; we had a whole abandoning the left episode a few years ago, and I was just looking at that now and saying, "Wow, like." You know, some of this was foreshadowed, you know, whether unions are turning away from union members are turning away from the Democrats, whether the black community is turning away from Democrats for the same thing, these unfulfilled promises or even the fact that they're not really addressing them out loud, which is what uh, Newman says Trump did. He said, you know, whether he was telling the truth or not, at least he said the things you wanted to hear. Right. Do we see any of this happening? Is Biden and them and company, you know, realizing that this is becoming a very slippery slope? Unions, uh, black voters, the the kind of a constituency that was always in bed with the Democrats, and that they're losing kind of bits and pieces here and there. Uh, is is anyone knocking on the door and saying, "Hey, man, you got to recognize what's happening." Do we see any of that? Biden standing up with the union the auto workers of course being the first sitting president i believe to actually you know mm-hmm. go to a picket line are they getting it are they getting the message um i don't know if biden gets any message
1: uh mm. today he says what his 81st birthday <laughs> um I, i'm not to try not making an ageism joke here but sure uh, i do think the guy not because of his age but just because right. of the years he spent inside these institutions um is stuck in his ways right there are obvious right. examples of him maybe turning away like when he went away from Afghanistan against all the war hawks and the media that wanted him to stay in Afghanistan. So there's obviously examples like that. But I do think to an extent Biden is stuck in his ways. He does say he's Union Joe, whatever he says. You're right. He did stand up um with Sean Fain um at one of the rallies for the UAW, which was seen as a huge success for the UAW, the way that they went about the strike and potentially getting deals there. But he also had a missed opportunity with the rail workers. You know, that's uh, right. Two years ago now, or even or a year ago, um, time flies in presidencies. And (laughs) I uh, I don't
0: know time after COVID. I don't know what year it is anymore. But
1: basically, like you know, basically kneecapping the entire um, their entire strategy to try to get. But I mean, these were people that basically worked nonstop and um, didn't even have sick days. And these, you know, and they worked tirelessly. And Biden turned against them. So there's plenty of examples of. Him doing both, so it's hard to tell. Mixed um, bag, yeah. Um, whether this helps Biden or, or or if the unions come out and support him, we'll see. Um, obviously, we've seen from uh, polls that he is suffering terribly against yeah. Trump. So yeah. I don't I don't know if anything can save him. Uh, but yeah, they need to show up union support even it's to, to have a fighting chance in some of these battleground states like Michigan, which he might lose a lot of votes. Because of right. what's happening now with the war in Gaza,
0: I, I think when you say he's kind of been stuck in his ways, he may think that the, of course they're gonna the unions are gonna support me, and anyway I went out on the picket line and and you know, but then you don't necessarily get all the nuance. And again, just like I'll be with Jay, with Clyburn in South Carolina again, and and so all the you know all the black folk will vote for me again. And people are like, I don't know, bro, not you know, maybe not this time. So I think there's some problems there, um, especially with third party candidates jumping into the fray. You know, it may not be the lock that they think it is. Uh, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully he reads this book. Yeah. Someone, yeah reads, so someone, should, someone, uh, reads, someone reads it to him. I want to know. <laughs>
1: you know, one thing I will say. With I mean, love
0: from the Newsbeat crew.
1: One thing I will say, if we, you know, on the union side is that Biden's National Labor Relations Board has been more pro-union than any that we've seen in like recent history if not like a generation so so there is that there are changes i'm not trying to say that the guy has done nothing or he doesn't support no i think i think i think but but it goes beyond just rhetoric and we always talk about rhetoric here but that that's important and you need to show something and he tried that at the beginning of his presidency um and it faltered and he's gonna point to things like the chips act and other ways of, of you know trying to build up infrastructure so we'll see but um i I will say, if if anything, it might just be the same sort of result as 2020, where slim margins, really, right. when you think about it. And so, it,
0: but it will. It's going to be a. It's going to tough. I'll call. I, I, I was going to say, I was going to say, Christian, you could you could have the, the, I guess, the final word here. But I was just going to say, it's all about messaging as well. I mean, you know, that's one thing that that when you say Trump just told people over and over again, you know, they have this way the the Republican side, the right wing, especially. Of getting these messages true or not, you know, bumper sticker length, beat you over the head with it, say it over and over again, whether it's true or not, and it becomes these these anthems that people just glom onto. It's easy access for our brains, and it feels good, sounds good, tastes good, smells good, and we want to be a part of that thing. And the Democrats have such a lesser ability uh, when it comes to that kind of messaging. I think personally, there are a lot of uh, blue collar you know, regular folk, just like working folk like us, just, you know, everyday stuff that the Biden administration has done a good job at. I don't think that uh, the Trump administration does look out for the working class. I don't think that they they do it. I don't think they did. And I certainly don't think they're going to in a re-up, you know what I mean? Because he's not going to be concerned with anything, but establishing more power for himself and then going after all these political enemies and all this, you know, craziness that could come out of it. Uh, So I'm not convinced at all. And I think that, you know, blue collar union workers, regular folk, we should be not going for him, but we also need to be reminded in a very effective way at the things that the Biden administration has done, can do and will do. And I don't think that they have that ability, uh, unfortunately. So Chris, you can take us out. Yeah, I mean, uh, just on that note, uh, I mean,
2: you sort of nailed it, but you know, when you think of Biden, you don't, I don't even know if he's capable of tapping into, you know, collective anger, collective rage. Right,
0: which is why he misses, they're missing these signs.
2: Yeah, There you go, you know, and and say what you will about Trump and we have much to say about Trump and we have said much about Trump (laughs) and the fact that he is an elitist and a wannabe one percenter or whatever he is, that he has the capability of going to these places and speaking that language and people actually follow him is not to be discounted, so.
0: Yeah. All right, we we shall see what happens. Once again, thank you for tuning in and listening to us. Uh, before, during and after this episode, please follow up with any infam- uh, any questions you might have. Grab this book, Rust Belt Union Blues, uh, listen to Lainey Newman, follow on Twitter, do all the things that you do when you want to learn more about a subject and possibly get involved or do something to help your side of the political spectrum. Uh, we're at usnewsbeat.com. You can read more about this essay on our Substack, our free Substack, uh, newsbeat.substack.com free sure yeah. subscribe there that's where you get all the information it's a it's a free subscription we'll give you these episodes added information all the links you might need uh more context uh, sometimes twice the context that you get from the episodes so, mm-hmm. so if something really touches you or you want to learn about more we do give more information there and we'll also give occasional you know stuff that isn't in an episode some uh, some other resources or writings or musings that we might have from this brilliant crew of talented journalists and you know and also me so thank you uh gentlemen for uh for doing this and for continuing your work unearthing the uh, social justice civil liberties and other uh often hidden often underreported but no less important stories that uh no one covers like y'all do and and, and defrocking false messiahs we have to throw that in there defrocking false messiahs i like it we appreciate
1: it, but we also we didn't have an op ed in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. So,
0: we did not collectively have an op ed in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I did, which is nice. If you want to find out more about that? Check me out, mannyfaces.com. Uh, for the rest of us and uh, the team behind the scenes, we thank you. We'll be back very soon with more Newsbeat. Peace and love, y'all. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy, Prophet of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one.
4: Sick.